Amen. And turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. This morning's message will be from verses 14 through 19. Nehemiah chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, we're working through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The Old Testament found just before the Psalms. If you find the Psalms and turn to the left, you go through Job and Esther, you'll hit Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. You know, done rightly, when we search the Old Testament scriptures, we need to be looking for Jesus Christ. We actually learn this practice from Christ himself. We didn't make this up. Jesus showed us how to do this. In John chapter 5, verse 39, he says to some Pharisees, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And then he says this, It is me that they bear witness about. He's speaking to the whole Old Testament, which had at that point been canonized and put into a collection of writings. We also know this from Jesus' encounter with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who are distraught at the, the crucifixion of the one that they thought was the Messiah. And Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus has taught us to read the Old Testament looking for him. And we've been doing that as we've worked through Ezra and Nehemiah, and we will certainly do that this morning in Nehemiah chapter 5. You know, Jesus in Matthew really gives us a significant teaching. In Matthew chapter 12, he gives us three big, bold statements about him in the Old Testament. When he's speaking to the Pharisees about the temple, the Old Testament temple, Jesus says, behold, something greater than the temple is here, referring to himself. When he's teaching about Jonah and the whale that swallowed him up for three days and spit him out, he then says, gentlemen, something greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. And then towards the end of that chapter, he's speaking about all the wisdom that Solomon had. And he says to his disciples, gentlemen, something greater than Solomon is here. It is I, Jesus Christ, whom Solomon and Jonah and the temple pointed to. The writer of Hebrews tells us Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. He's the greatest high priest. He's the once and for all sacrifice for sins. All of the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus Christ. And Christ has made it certain in our hearts and minds as he speaks in the scriptures that that is true. And this morning, we will see that Nehemiah points to the ultimate greatness of Jesus Christ. And I've entitled this sermon, Something Greater Than Nehemiah Is Here. Something Greater Than Nehemiah Is Here. Well, let's look at the text. Before I read 14 through 19, let me set the table. In verses 1 through 13, the last time we were together in this book, we saw that the people of Israel were building the wall around Jerusalem, rebuilding it from its destruction back in the days of Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. We saw that that reconstruction work was hard on the people of Israel. Number one, they were being attacked verbally and the threat of physical attack was prevalent outside the walls by Tobias and others. 
We see that the people looked up to see how big the burden was to continue rebuilding, and they were weary and fatigued and discouraged. We saw that internal people, Israelites themselves, ten times came to these people and said, come home, quit this rebuilding. So they had strife and discouragement from outside and from within, and even in their own hearts they were bewildered. And then in in Nehemiah chapter 5, 1 through 13, we see it gets worse. For there was something lurking within the people of Israel themselves. The nobles and the overseers of Israel were exacting interest on the people who were building the walls. The people were building the walls so faithfully around the clock that they could not tend to their fields. So that they couldn't even provide food for their families. And many of them had to take out loans to buy food. Some of them mortgaged their property so that they could buy food to eat on. Some of them borrowed to pay taxes to Artaxerxes in Persia. And they borrowed all of this and they mortgaged all of this to their own brothers. Their brothers were their bankers, I said two weeks ago. And God has commanded in the Old Testament, you shall not exact usury from your own people. And Nehemiah discovers they're doing this, and he is greatly angered. He had a righteous anger, if you remember. And then he counseled with himself, and he sought the Lord's word, and he came and he confronted these nobles and said, this is wrong. And we need to reinstate all that we've taken from these people. And thankfully, these nobles were cut to the heart, repented, and restored to the Israelites what was theirs originally. Now we pick up in verse 14, and Nehemiah is going to take this further because Nehemiah had said earlier, even I am lending to them, meaning I'm loaning them money so that they can eat, but he's not exacting interest from them. He's helping his brothers and sisters in need, and he's saying, you must do the same without profit motive. And now he's going to give us in verses 14 through 19 even more example of how he was leading as a servant humble considering the strife of the people that he was overseeing so here we go nehemiah 5 14 moreover from that time that i was appointed to be the governor in the land of judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of artaxerxes the king 12 years neither i nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at any time, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because... The service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah 
is a servant leader. Nehemiah is held forth to us in the Scriptures as an example that we are to not only embrace, not only marvel at, but to imitate. This is a pattern for how we are called by God to live. I want to look for Christ as we follow Nehemiah's leadership in these verses. And I want to start by showing you three self-denials. We're going, to, we're going to see three ways that Nehemiah denies himself. And then I'm going to take you to a second point, and I'm going to show you three motives for why Nehemiah denied himself these three times. And then we'll make application, and we'll see that something greater than Nehemiah is here. His name is Jesus Christ. So first, we, let's look at the self-denial of professional entitlements that were due Nehemiah. In verses 14 through 15, we see that Nehemiah is the governor of the region called Judah. We've not known that to this point in the text. We're learning some new information here. At some point during his rebuilding and reforming of Jerusalem, it seems that Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, his former boss, has appointed him to governorship of Judah. And in this section of the narrative, we're, we're preaching from the book of Nehemiah that is drawn from Nehemiah's journals. Ezra collected them. We're seeing that Nehemiah chronologically expanded his narrative in this moment of wall rebuilding. And he takes us out 12 years beyond the moment of rebuilding the wall. He inserts right here future details into this immediate narrative because he wants to show the example of servant leadership, of sacrificial service for God and for man. And so he demonstrates right here his call to sacrifice for others by detailing his leadership in difficult times. That's how we get to this point. Now, we understand also from this text that the governor of Judah, the governor of this territory, had all kinds of entitlements due him. He had fringe benefits <laughs> that were lucrative. He led the provincial state of Judah and was due entitlements that came to such leadership. We see there that there's a food allowance for the governor. And those governors that were before Nehemiah exacted from the people to the tune of 40 shekels of silver. I have no idea the present value of that, but let's understand clearly that is a load of money per person for the substantiation of the governor of their region. He had a gigantic per diem. He had a food allowance that equaled a large sum of money from each person. And in principle... Let's get this really clear. In principle, it is not sinful for the governor to have a per diem from the people that he leads. It's not wrong. But under these circumstances, Nehemiah, knowing the condition of the people that he's called to lead, he thought it would be sinful for him to receive. And so he abstains. But it doesn't end there. So the first, we've got this self-denial of professional entitlements. The second self-denial is this. We have a self-denial of personal assets. Watch this. In verse 17, 
there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And guess what? They had to be fed. It was expected of the governor to feed such an entourage. In verse 18, he says, Now what was prepared at my expense, underline that, at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was heavy on the people. Nehemiah is an unselfish leader. Nehemiah has a great understanding for the duress that the people of Jerusalem are under as they frantically build a wall under the conditions of a famine with enemies outside threatening and enemies from within discouraging. And he says, I'm going to sacrifice personal assets during this Season And we understand from the scripture here that the season lasted 12 years. As governor, he was expected to feed and entertain his entourage of staff. That's 150 people. But we also understand that he is to entertain international guests that are passing through the region. And this required a massive investment of food and drink on a daily basis. And rather than draw from the people, Nehemiah sacrificed his own personal assets. Huh. This is is a governor like they have not seen before. As Nehemiah testifies, those that were before me did this to the people. Now, let's make something very obvious apparent to us here. Nehemiah was very obviously extremely wealthy. And by the way, it's not sinful to be wealthy. We see that in throughout the text of Scripture. Abraham, Job, here Nehemiah. Nehemiah has obviously amassed great wealth, a huge fortune in his days as Artaxerxes' cupbearer. And he served as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. This was not indentured servitude. It was a, a vocation. It was an honor to be hired into that position. And Nehemiah had great wealth that amassed from this position with Artaxerxes. And I think it's important to note this morning that Nehemiah had great wealth, but great wealth did not have Nehemiah. He forsook the earning power of being the cupbearer to the king and asked for permission to go back to Jerusalem and was granted it. He marched a thousand miles from Persia to Jerusalem so that he could help the people rebuild the city of Jerusalem, namely the walls around the city. And then he devoted himself to the task of rebuilding. He was engaged himself on that wall building. And then after all of that said and done, now he dips into his personal fortune and he feeds all of these people in his entourage as a part of his governorship, as a part of his employment. This is a servant leader who is devoted to the tasks that God has given and the people that are to accomplish it. So we need to stop when we see an example like this in Scripture and we need to ask ourselves some questions. What rights or entitlements are we grasping to to the detriment of other people? 
He was entitled to what he, as the governor, was due. But he did not grasp it. He let go of it. He dipped into his own personal fortune to take care of the very people that he was called to draw from and to serve. Prosperity, as I've said many times from this pulpit, prosperity is our most dangerous condition. Times of shortness and of need are not as dangerous as our times of plenty and prosperity. Nehemiah is in an ultimately prosperous moment. And he responds in the most godly and holy of ways. Nehemiah teaches us here that just because we do something doesn't mean that we take something. We, we have vocations, we have roles in life, in organizations, in our families, in our church that entitle us to certain things. But just because we are due them does not mean that we have to take them. We need to survey the, the land. We need to understand the conditions that we are in to see if it's right for us to take what is our due. And if it's not, we need to follow in the path of Nehemiah and we need to deny ourselves for a season. That's what we're learning so far from Nehemiah. So we've got two self-denials. The self-denial of professional entitlements and the self-denial of personal assets. Let me show you the third one. The third one's found in verse 16. And it's the self-denial of personal ambitions. Verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. That's a very interesting sentence. There's a lot of information right there. Nehemiah was a man of godly integrity and servant leadership. He starts verse 16 by saying, I persevered in the work on this wall. Servant leadership right there. He's not high and mighty supervising people that are working on the wall, doing interviews with the press, taking photo ops as they come up, showing these international guests who are going, coming through town the, the project. No, he is persevering in the work on this wall. His personal ambition was not self. His personal ambition was God and God's work for God's people. His personal ambition was doing that also in such a way that it was not a burden, that he could minimize the burden on the people of God. So he worked on the wall. Look at Nehemiah 4.23, just right there at the end of chapter 4. Nehemiah says, neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand, and they persevered in working on God's wall around God's city in obedience to God. He's a leader. He's got a sword and a trowel in his hand. He's leading the people of God to do what God has ordered. And he's present and active and counted amongst his brothers. But look at that next phrase. We acquired no land. That is a loaded phrase right there. 
Do you understand that this was the time to acquire land? There's a famine. The people are mortgaged to their gills. Usury is being charged. People are desperate for food. What happens to the price of land in such circumstances? It tanks. This is the time to acquire, Nehemiah. This is the time to build your empire. Buy land on the cheap. But he makes it a point to say, I persevered in building the wall, and I abstained from buying land. It's a buyer's market, and I'm not a buyer. I'm a worker. I'm a server of the people of God in the task of God at this time God has appointed. And then he says, I even required my servants to gather there for the work. His predecessor governors, their servants, lorded their position over the people. But he requires his servants to serve. What a concept. To serve the people, not the king. And so they're not polishing his palace. They're not combing his vineyards. They're not building up his flocks. Grooming his land. No, they too are beside him building God's wall around God's city with God's people. And so we see here Nehemiah leading in a new way. In a way that is contrary to the world that he lived in. In a way that's contrary to the world that we live in today. He is leading in a countercultural way. And this is what God would have all of his leaders do in all epochs of time. We need to lead contrary to the way the culture calls us to lead. Where his predecessors laid heavy burdens on the people, he did not. Where he was entitled to the privilege of food rations of 40 shekels of silver, he passed. Where his predecessor's servants lorded their status over the people, he had his servants serve the people. Where his predecessors asked, what have you done for me lately? He asks, what can I do for you? He's leading in God's way. He's showing us how servant leadership from a biblical perspective should be conducted amongst God's people. Isaiah 55, 8, God tells us something about God. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And Nehemiah is surrendered to following God's thoughts and God's ways. And he's denied the thoughts of his culture and the ways of his culture and the predecessors and even the office that he's in. He's saying, I am not going to think Like this world has programmed my office to think. I'm not going to act that way. No, I'm going to imitate God. So in this moment, we see that Nehemiah has got a conscience. And Nehemiah's conscience is subject to God. He does not subject God to his conscience. Ooh. You ever done that? You ever had a conscience, an opinion in your conscience about something, and you subjected God to conform to your conscience so that you could justify doing it? Nehemiah didn't do that. Nehemiah looked for the conscience of God 
And he conformed his conscience to that one. And he came under the headship of the Lord God Almighty. And he adopted his thoughts and his ways, denying what was natural to Nehemiah in the flesh. So do your thoughts and ways need to be recalibrated this morning? Do you, do you need to look into this situation in God's history to see that, wow, I, I need to imitate Nehemiah here. I need to understand the way God thinks and the way God acts, and I need to make some changes in the way I lead in my church, in the way that I shepherd my wife, in the way that I raise my children, in the way that I lead my business, in the way that I treat my customers and my employees and my students. There's an example here that God intentionally has given us. And we need to imitate this man, Nehemiah. Well, let me now shift. Those are three self-denials. He self-denied him his professional entitlements, his personal assets, and his personal ambitions. Let me give you three motives. I want you to lean in here. Let me give you three motives behind Nehemiah's self-denial. The first is found in verse 15. Let me set it up like this. We need to understand what drove Nehemiah to not lord his entitlements over the people that he led. And we need to pay attention to the Scripture as God has inspired it to be written. We need to look for some key words here. We need to pay attention to the Bible, especially when the Bible uses words like because. And there are two becauses in this text. These becauses will explain Nehemiah's motive, and it will instruct us for how we are to relate to God and man in the roles that he's given us in this life. So at the very end of verse 15, we see that Nehemiah says, I did not do so. I did not lord it over the people because of the fear of God. Circle that because. I recommend writing in the Bible. That's a key word right here. He denies himself these rights because, number one, the fear of God. He's not wanting a great reputation. He's not wanting us to boast about him today in 2018, so he did this. No, he did this because he feared God. He's got a heart like David. In Psalm 33:18. David says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those whose hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Nehemiah says, I feared God and therefore I passed on what I was entitled to. That's a good reason. Fear, just to define it real quickly, is belief in God. It is worship of God. It is obedience to God. When you fear God, you believe, worship, and obey him in all that he does. In all that he says, you understand out of fear of the Lord that his commands are good and worthy of you obeying. And therefore you worship him as you do what he says. And you do all that because you believe in him. You fear him. You love 
him. So Nehemiah says, I love God. And so I can't lord myself in my position over these people because I love God. It's all about the Lord first. For Nehemiah, God is present. God is real. God is living. God is watching. God will hold him accountable. And he fears that God. He respects that God. He loves that God. For Nehemiah, God is not a feeling. He's not an emotion or a crutch. He's not a genie in the bottle that you want to pacify. No, he is living and active. Ruling and reigning. And worthy to be imitated and honored. In his life. Well, let's look at the second because. Look down in verse 18, at the end of verse 18. I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Circle that second because. He feared God, he loved God. Well, now he loves neighbor. And that ought to start ringing some bells in your head, Christian. Are you familiar with the double love commandments that Jesus gave? Jesus in Matthew 22 answers the lawyer's question. A lawyer says, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) Nehemiah is doing both of these right here. Because I feared the Lord, because I loved God, I did not lord my position over the people. And because I loved these people, I did not demand my due from them. You hear it? Love God, love neighbor, right here. And Jesus Christ says these are the two greatest commandments. He goes on to say, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Nehemiah here is showing us how to live out the Bible, the law and the prophets of God. By loving God and loving neighbor. You know, your eternity hangs on these two commandments and how they are lived out in your life. Do you know what it means to live in the fear of God? Do you know what it means to live out your love for neighbor? Husband to wife, parents to child... Employer to employees, pastor to congregation. Do you know what it means to live out a fear of God and a love for people in the relationships and in the livelihoods that God has given you? You cannot do one of these without the other. I want you to try it. You try to love neighbor while you don't love God. You will not do it. I want you to try to not love God while you love your neighbor. It's not possible. You have to have both of these loves, and you have to have them in the right order. You've got to love God first. And in so doing, you will love your neighbor second. And in so doing, you will be actually loving God who made your neighbor. And then it's a cycle that never stops. Nehemiah is teaching us this. So we've got two motives For the self-sacrifice, because I feared God and because this service was too heavy on the people. I loved neighbor. Here's the third one. It's found in verse 19, the very end of our text. He prays briefly to God right here. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Brief prayer inserted right there. 
we will see Nehemiah pray this prayer four times in this book. Here's the first one. We'll get to those later. They're later towards chapter 10. Here, Nehemiah asks God for eternal rewards. He says, remember me for my good, oh my God, for all that I've done. I want eternal rewards for this, God. I'm denying myself temporary rewards right now in exchange for eternal, permanent, perpetual rewards. I want you, God, to remember me for my good. Does that make you uncomfortable? Does that seem to unravel the self-denial that I just walked you through in the three ways? Because, oh, here's the self. He's really greedy for eternal gain. Well, I want you to know the desire for eternal gain, for rewards from God is righteous. It's not wrong. It's not selfish. It's righteous. It's not wrong to want what God has promised God does not promise us things that we shouldn't want. He's made promises throughout Scripture that there is eternal reward for us if we love Him and love neighbor. And He's warned us that there's eternal condemnation for those who don't love Him and don't love neighbor. And so Nehemiah is just saying, Lord, I want what you've promised And I want you to just look into this prayer. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This prayer reveals something about Nehemiah. Don't read it too quickly. For Nehemiah, he understood, he realized, he felt the sacrifice that he was making for these people. Uh, You think about it, 150 people. How many oxen? sheep and birds and how much wine at his own expense did he have to provide for 12 years seven days a week 12 years it's a fortune he felt it no doubt so he asked god to remember me for these sacrifices that i'm making for these your people it was a real sacrifice Nehemiah had real flesh, real skin in the game, and he had to subdue himself for the glory of God and the good of his neighbor. This wasn't easy for him. That's what that prayer tells me. So he's not a superhuman, and we can't say, oh, I couldn't be like Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he's one of those biblical guys that had it all together and that loved God in ways that I can't. I can't do that. No, right there, remember me, Lord, this sacrifice cost me. And I would love to exchange temporary gain for eternal reward. Would you remember me, God? He's just like you and me. He is just like us. Nehemiah knows that he will have to give an account for his leadership of God's people. And boy, this is a biblical principle throughout the Old and New Testament. Let me take you to the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5. When Peter himself is writing to the elders of the church, he says, I'm an elder just like you, and here's what I want to say to you. I want to say, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, 
1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Right there. Do you see Nehemiah? In Peter's instruction to biblical elders in the New Testament church. We're to shepherd the flock of God. Not build our own kingdoms. We're to exercise oversight. But not under compulsion. We're to do it willingly. We're to do it as God would have us. Not for shameful gain. Do you see Nehemiah living this out in Old Testament Israel? He was eager to do it. He didn't domineer over those in his charge. He was being an example to the flock. That's why we even have verses 14 through 19. He's showing these rulers of Jerusalem how they should live with the people of God. And man, verse 4, when the chief shepherd comes, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Nehemiah says, remember me for my good, O my God. I want that unfading crown of glory. Because it cost me now. For the glory of you and the good of your people. Scripture gives us a heavy emphasis on eternal rewards. I mean, you ought to do an inventory of the Bible on what the Bible says about storing up treasures in heaven and having eternal rewards waiting for us when Christ comes again. How about Matthew six nineteen through 20? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Rather, store up treasures for yourself in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Nehemiah is storing up treasures in heaven. We're commanded to store up treasures in heaven. Remember us, O oh our God, for the sacrifices we've made out of fear of you and desire for your people to thrive and flourish. Nehemiah was living for the promised life to come. Nehemiah seeks eternal rewards from God just like David. Listen to this, Psalm 7-8. David says, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, you be careful praying that. <laughs> David needed to be careful praying that. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is within me. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, we understand that there's no righteousness in us in and of ourselves. And we're void of integrity. We're, it is not within us. In fact, we need to agree with Isaiah, who said, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. That's true of David who prayed that, of Nehemiah who we're looking at, of me who stands here and preaches to you, of you who's listening. All of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. So what's the point? Can you pray like Nehemiah prayed? Remember me for all I've done for this people? Can you pray like David? Remember me? Judge me according to my righteousness? No. You need what David was thinking of when he prayed such a prayer. Your works and my works are polluted and we must have someone who is righteous 
on our behalf. Because we're not going to get it done. How can we be righteous and filled with integrity? Well, that's the point of the sermon this morning, because I'm going to tell you that something greater than Nehemiah is here. Now let's search the Scriptures to see how Nehemiah bears witness to Jesus Christ. We're going to finish down this page here. And I need you to stay with me, because this is the absolute most important moment in this message. We need to look into the Scriptures to see Nehemiah's example lived out in Jesus Christ. And so turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. We preached through this book last year. I pray that this passage is very familiar to you. We spent several weeks on it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul tells us, With this command, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Real quick, you see Nehemiah right there? I do. Nehemiah lived this out 500 years before it was written. He goes on in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. And then Paul concretely grounds this. In Jesus Christ, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. (laughs) But instead, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Boy, Nehemiah was pointing us to Jesus Christ way long before Christ ever came. He was not selfishly ambitious. He was not conceited. He was humble, and he considered the people of Israel more important to him himself. Why? Because he feared the God of those people. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Nehemiah didn't think his position was something to be clutched onto and held. He let go of the entitlements. And Jesus Christ let go of what he was entitled to. Deity was Christ's right and privilege. That's what he had to hold on to if he wanted. But instead he denied himself this privilege of sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And he personally sacrificed by becoming one of us. Think about that. Nehemiah devoted himself to persevering in the construction of that wall, even though he was the Lord of Judah, the governor. He stooped. And he had a sword and a trowel in his hand. And he persevered in building the wall of God. We've got a picture of Christ. Here, something greater than Nehemiah. If Jesus Christ would have demanded of us what he was due from us, the burden on us would have been too heavy. Think about that. If Christ didn't stoop and become one of us, 
so that he could fulfill what we should have done, if he would have demanded us to make right with God, that burden would have crushed us. And we would have been undone for eternity. Instead, Jesus Christ eased our burden by denying himself his rights and privileges at a great, great personal cost. He took on flesh. He took the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he subjected himself to death. Even death on a cross. Something greater than Nehemiah is here. Instead, we get verses like this, 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Something greater than Nehemiah is here. We become rich in Christ by believing in Him and His substitution for our sinfulness. It's not our acts of righteousness. They are like filthy rags. It is Christ's acts of righteousness. Taking on flesh, never sinning, dying in our place, rising from the grave. Those are the acts of righteousness that we ask God to remember for our good. We say to God, would you remember what Christ did for my good? (laughs) And we get the rewards that Christ has earned. We sang that this morning. Wow. Jesus, God the Son, feared God the Father and loved His neighbor. He loved you and me and He feared the Father. And so He obeyed Him to the point of death. He wanted the Father's will to be done. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he could have yanked out of the whole crucifixion scene, he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He feared God and he loved neighbor in that prayer. He said, I want to obey you and I'll die on this cross if it's your will. Because I know it will be good for your people. So don't do what I want. Do what you want. We see in Hebrews that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Something greater than Nehemiah is here. Do you see? Look at this. Let's finish with this. Because of his personal sacrifice, God remembered Christ for what he did for all of his people. Over in John chapter 17, we've got Jesus praying the night that he was betrayed. In 17 verses 4 and 5, Jesus prays this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You know what he just prayed? He prayed, Father, remember me for my good, for what I've done for these people. He says, glorify me. I glorified you on earth. Would you glorify me in heaven? Would you give me the eternal rewards, the unfading crown of glory? So Nehemiah's prayer wasn't selfish. It was a type 
of prayer that would be prayed by Jesus Christ. What was God's answer to that prayer? We go back to Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was rewarded for his works of obedience on behalf of us. And we though our works are like filthy rags, must ask God to remember the works of Christ in our place so that we too might join Him in this reward of eternal life in a crown that has no fading glory about it. So how will you respond to this this morning? Something greater than Nehemiah has come. His name is Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ, being God in the flesh, would make Himself poor for you, then there's no sacrifice that you should deny giving back to Him. Namely, your life. This is the truth that Emily lived out before us in the water. She basically said, Christ, you died for me. You rose again. And you were glorified by God the Father in eternity. And I want to join you there, so I give my life to you. And I imitate you in death and burial and resurrection, expecting you to remember me for all of eternity. Because I fear you. My God. Jesus died for her. She died, he died for us. And we need to respond by dying with Him. And being raised again. Will you follow Nehemiah's example? Even today, I say this with humility, will you follow Emily's example? And proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And live that out to the fullest until He comes again. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You so much for Nehemiah. We thank You that You made Nehemiah and You caused him to lead in the history of Your people. We thank You for Ezra recording from Nehemiah's journals this truth in history. We thank You that Nehemiah points us to something greater. And I praise you, Jesus Christ. And I say to you this morning, something greater than Nehemiah is here. He is you, the Christ, the Son of the living God. For the believers here this morning, Father, I pray that you would lead us to fear you and to love people like Nehemiah and like Jesus. For those that are here today that do not believe in your son Jesus Christ I pray that you would create in them a desire to die to the life that they have figuratively speaking to be raised new and ready for the coming of the one who will redeem people for all of eternity 
We pray this for your glory and for the good of your people. In the name of our Christ, amen.